tonight in uh, the worship of our Most High God. Thankful to have an opportunity to open God's Word with you tonight and share uh, some of what I have learned in the hopes that it will be um, an encouragement to you as well. So, tonight, we are going to talk about gender in the Bible. And so, some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight would not be widely accepted in our secular culture. Um, some of the things that we're going to talk about um, are going to be offensive to people who aren't acquainted with the teachings of the Bible. And so, I want you to know that my goal tonight is to magnify Christ. My goal tonight is to teach God's Word and truth. My goal tonight is not to unnecessarily offend anyone. I don't know who all we have here tonight. I know we've got people that I've worshipped with and studied the Scripture with who love the Lord, understand His Word, and what it teaches on some of these things. But you may be here tonight, and I don't know you. And I don't know where you are on some of these issues or what you've been taught or what you've heard from the world, where your heart is tonight. But I want you to know that my sincere desire is to go to the Scripture and to earnestly search for God's teaching so that we can honor Him in every area of our life. I appreciate the song that Brad led and that that Brother Michael led that speak to the idea of our dependence and our necessity of depending on God's wisdom beyond our own. And so that's what we intend to do tonight. So we're going to kind of range wide and far, we're going to ask the question, why are gender issues important to Christians? Well, they're important in our culture. If you look at the culture war, whatever you want to describe that is, as a whole, this is a hot-button battlefield of the culture war. As political and spiritual forces in our country square off against secular forces, we see a lot of argument, rhetoric, and propaganda on both sides of gender issues and gender equality and and how many genders are there and what role should they play in the modern church ad nauseum. And so we're going to talk about these things because these things are going to come up. They're going to come up as you enter in the workplace and you deal with someone who's going to have a pronoun pin and they're going to ask to be addressed by a certain set of pronouns and you need to be ready for that. You're going to have kids in school And they're going to have friends who identify as transgender. And your kids are going to to need to know how to respond to these people in a way that honors Christ, shows His love and His mercy, and also holds true to what we learn in the Scripture. So we're going to to deal with issues of, of people coming into the Lord's church who are coming from a background where they have may have been deceived on some of these things, and they're going to need to find a place they can depend on where they can find the mercy of Christ, and they can find good, compassionate teaching that reaffirms a high view of Scripture and what God has commanded that we do. And they're going to need a place where they can come in and feel non-threatened while they learn how to follow Christ as a, as a sinner coming to Him in need of grace. Those are some reasons why that we need to understand gender issues and be ready to think about them, study about them, and talk about them in the right way. So, part of the roadmap that we're going to follow tonight is establishing the fact that God created gender. It's part of humanity, which we would all probably agree that God created for His own purposes and glory. And humanity has gender. I would say that everything in in the universe 
animate and inanimate, a lot of things have a gender that aren't even alive. And that's another conversation we can talk about. But God created the idea of gender. And so it's important to us that we get it right. And I believe that will bear out in this study tonight that God uses gender as a mechanism to teach us how to relate to himself and to each other. Now, it's pretty obvious to me that a proper understanding of gender is the foundation of a functional biblical family. And we know that the functional biblical family is also a building block of a healthy, mature church body. And the reason that these issues are coming up is because Satan is attempting to destroy gender. The, the biblical notion of gender and the teaching that has been the human teaching for the last six to 8,000 years, and just now we got confused about it, okay? Satan has tried a new attack. He's attacking gender. Because he knows that he can erode humanity's understanding of gender, then he can attack the family and the church, which are the primary institutions which God uses to teach us about how to have a relationship with him and each other as a family and as a church family. That's why it's important. So, you might say, wait, is biblical gender actually under attack, or am I just fear-mongering? Well, have you ever seen one of these signs in front of a restroom? (laughs) Beware. If you do, there's no telling what you'll find if you open that door, right? Now, that's kind of a funny thing, but issues about which restroom do we use have become a very practical impact of what we're going to do. Now, here's a, a screenshot of an article And this article is from 2014, okay? Long time ago. And it says that school is is told to call kids purple penguins because boys and girls is not inclusive to transgender. There was a radio story that I listened to, and this was an article that also talked about the radio story. And there was an interview that was given about how that the children were displaying oppressive cisgenderism. If you don't know what cisgenderism, I'll just tell you, if you were, like Mr. Rogers said, if, if you're born a boy, you are a boy and you'll be a boy. And if you're born a girl, you are a girl and you'll be a girl. Mr. Rogers had it right 40 years ago, good man. Cisgender is essentially agreeing that, that your gender identity should match your biological sex. That's cisgender. So I'm a cisgender male, right? That's what that is. So... It was a hot button because the handbook read like this. So this is part of the article. Furthermore, the handbook instructs teachers to interfere and interrupt if they ever hear a student talking about gender in terms of boys and girls so that the student can learn that this is wrong. Okay, I'm not poking fun at public schools, all right? Our kids, we're homeschooled. We have a blend of a private Christian school, homeschool blend, and I think everyone has to make the very best decision that fits their family and their needs. And this is not a dig at public schools. I just want to make that disclaimer. But in this instance, this particular case, these teachers were being told to do the wrong thing. They were told to interrupt if that student talks about gender in a binary way, boys and girls. Point out and inquire when you hear others referencing gender in a binary manner. It states, ask things like, what makes you say that? I think about it a little differently. Provide counter-narratives that challenge students to think more expansively about their notions of gender. And so the ridiculousness of this idea in in my mind is that it makes more sense in these folks' minds to call every child a purple penguin than to call any child a girl or a boy. 
And to me, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So the question is, is gender binary one or the other, or is it a spectrum like we're being told nowadays? And I think it's, this is an important time in the study to make the distinction between someone having a biological sex and a gender identity. And the truth is, this is kind of a new thing, because the progressive forces in our country have taken over the argument, and they have made a distinction here where previously one did not exist. Used to, you were a man or a woman, and even if you had preferences for one or the other that didn't line up with what society normally did, you still thought you were a man or a woman. It was pretty cut and dried. But now people are saying that you may have, that you may have a biological sex or you may not, uh, but also you have something beside that called a gender identity, which can be a spectrum and can be fluid over time. And so that's the new idea. And I'm going to argue against that idea. I do not believe that gender identity is a thing that is different than your biological sex that you were born with. So binary means relating to, composed over, involving two things. Right, left, cold, hot, windy, Oklahoma. You know, total opposites. So binary. I would argue, and the Scripture teaches that gender is binary. It is male or female. But I learned recently that in addition to male or female, there are now, the latest list that I saw, 72 different gender identities that someone can now identify with. Some of these don't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I just copied and pasted these from a website. Aesthetic gender, also called aesthetic gender, is a type of gender derived from aesthetics or appearances. And so you should read that as a costume. However you want to look or dress, that's how you derive your gender is how you're dressed or how you're made up. Affective gender, your, pers- your, your gender is now based on your mood. I was like, that's called being a teenager. Ambinec, a person identifies themselves as both man and woman and yet does not belong to either. I don't really know what to say about that. Um, Anxigender. Identity with having anxiety as its prominent characteristic. Like anxiety is a challenge. It's a clinical disorder. It can be a personality type maybe, but it's not a gender. And this one was just fun, kind of funny to me. Femgender, a non-binary, meaning not male or female, non-binary gender identity that is feminine. Like that doesn't make any sense at all. It's an actual contradiction. Don't go read the whole list because I'm going to summarize it. The summarize of the a summarization of the other 72 gender identities is, and I'm not being lighthearted, I'm being honestly and serious here. It's mental illness, confusion, and depravity. That's all it is. It's confusion. It's people being deceived. It's people who are oppressed by the devil, who have some of our most base instincts and in, in who we are as a, as a person has been twisted by the power of Satan and his deceptive devices to trick us into departing from the faith of God. We're going to talk about that. Uh, Chart male, female, androgynous is kind of having traits of both. Pansexual, I don't really know what that means. And then other, not really clearly defined. This is a chart from a long time ago. But it's just interesting to see how some people view this rather as binary. 
But what does the Bible teach? Because that's what I'm really interested in. What does the Bible teach? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, last night we talked about being an image bearer to God, and that's the reason that God didn't allow Israel to create idols. is because He doesn't need an image of wood, stone, or metal to, re- to reveal His image because He made us to do that holy work. And the more that we align with the Word of God and the will of God, the more we'll reflect His true nature and then our lives will be an instructive tool to teach the nations about who God is and what's important to Him. We, in that, we live that in our lives. God made us in our or in His image, okay? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image, man, mankind. In the image of God, He created him, male and female. To me, this indicates that God has within himself the essence of male and feminine. I'm not saying that God is a, is a goddess. He's obviously God. And he reveals himself with the masculine pronoun consistently through Scripture. But he contains within himself both essences and given that as a gift to humanity for our good and his glory. Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to birds of the air, every beast of the field. But to Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. The King James renders this a help meet for him, a help that was suitable for him. And let's dig into this word a little bit, comparable. It means a counterpart one who stands opposite to him. And it's not like a mirror. It's like a mirror that shows the opposite. You see, whenever God, made, whenever God created Eve and presented her back to Adam, he didn't need someone who looked exactly like Adam, who thought exactly like Adam, who approached problems like Adam, who would raise children just like Adam, and would have the same emotional responses to creation just like Adam. That's not what God wanted. Guys, if you're ever asking, why is my wife this way? I'm like, because God made her that way just right. Okay? It's okay. It's all part of the plan. He needed someone different than him. In woman, God didn't need someone who could do everything that Adam could do. He needed someone who could do what Adam could not do. And that's where we have woman. What a blessing. She was a counterpart. Man, Adam, containing the masculine essence and all the good and bad that comes along with that, and Eve containing all the richness of the feminine essence, which was a gift to God, or a gift from God to humanity. And so God made us in His image, male and female. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, do you think that God is a good communicator? I think that God, who created speech and language, whose stars and planets utter speech night by night, who created us who can communicate like He can, He's a great communicator. God had the ability in Genesis chapter 2 to teach us about the way He put the world together. and He could have said, you know, I created humanity after my own essence, and it contains a whole spectrum of gender that ranges from you know, feminine to masculine to androgynous to Everything in between. God could have easily communicated that was with us, and it would have been very helpful for him to do that. But he didn't. God was very specific. And he said he created us binary. Male, female. 
Now here's a great part. Genesis 2.21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib on which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. You know why she called him woman? God says, okay, Adam, I'm going to put you to sleep. When you wake up, I have a surprise for you. He wakes up, God brings her Eve. He says, whoa, man, right? He was impressed. That last part was a joke. Verse 24, last, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. You know what's going on here? Is that God took Adam. He was alone. And God took a little piece out of Adam. Piece of himself, bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. And then he changed it, made it special, and then brought that piece of Adam back to him after the work of God on it, and then joined it back together. So if, think about when Adam and Eve got married, it's almost like, almost like God tucked that rib back into Adam. Only this, this time, what was going to join them together wasn't going to be flesh and sinew and skin, but love. This was the idea that God set forth. And then he says, Adam, a man is going to leave his family. He's going to leave his mom and his dad, and he's going to find a woman that he loves, and he's going to join to her, and they are going to be one flesh again, just like you and Eve are. God laid out the plan. And God's a great communicator, and he could have said, you know, Adam, whenever your kids get old enough, they're going to look out and they're going to find somebody, anybody they want that they're attracted to or strikes their fancy, and it could be a man or it could be a woman, and they're going to come together, and it's going to be a picture of me and what we did here. But that's not a picture. A man trying to marry a man does not fit the model that God created here. A woman marrying a woman does not mirror the work of God in creation like we read about here. It doesn't fill the bill. And in order for this passage to make sense, we have to have a firm idea of who we are as a man or a woman. So let's talk for a little bit more about what the Bible teaches about gender, that it's male and it's female. God was plain and unequivocal in his communication about that. He created male and female complementary, right? They complement one another. Can't have one without the other. They go together just right. And God's design is perfect. One man plus one wife for life is a marriage in the ideal circumstances, right? Now, we all know that sometimes things happen, but this was the pure plan from the very beginning, God's ideal. So here's a question. What about intersex individuals? And I think it's why it's important to distinguish people who are born a different way versus people who are confused about who they are. Okay? So sometimes when folks are born, it's not immediately clear what their biological sex is. In the past, um, people who were born like this might have been called a hermaphrodite. Now, that's not really a, a politically correct uh, word. Now it's intersex is the word that we should use. That's the more sensitive term to talk about people who were born with this challenge. And I looked in the Scripture to find, I said, what, was, what does the Bible say? And there's not a lot there. But I found a few passages that I think speak to the principle, and I hope they're instructive for us tonight. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31a, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. God saw the whole creation, humanity, male, female, it was all very good. Now, we know that things messed up pretty quick and that we fall into a, a corrupted, sin-blasted landscape known as Genesis chapter 6, right? 
And sometimes people are born with malformations. Maybe your hand could be messed up or a foot could be messed up or maybe your eyes don't form right. And it's possible that a person's genitals aren't formed correctly. And it's not immediately obvious. And so maybe a little bit more investigation is needed in order to find out who God made this person truly to be. And then medical care can be given to folks nowadays that can get them on the path that God needs them to be on. But you know what would be a shame? Now, you may have had a child who was born that had some sort of a difficulty at birth that they weren't formed like we would normally expect. I think it would be a shame to take a child who is born without their left hand and then to celebrate that, to say, good news, Johnny doesn't have a left hand. Say, well, that's terrible. Now, that doesn't mean that Johnny's terrible because he doesn't have his left hand. That doesn't mean that we should be unkind to Johnny or that we should pick on him or make fun of him or make his life hard because he wasn't born like I was. What that does mean is that we need to do everything we can, Johnny, for him to lead the best life that he can and be who God wants him to be. I think it would be sadistic and disgusting to to celebrate a child who had a problem like that. And if there's someone who is deceived by the devil or if they have difficulties in that way, it's not appropriate to celebrate. Rather, we need to help to help that person become who God needs them to be. Jesus also talked about a eunuch. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, his disciples said to him, and the context here is that they've been teaching about marriage and about how that you shouldn't just kick your wife out in the street for any reason that you want to, that you need to stick with her, right? And Peter's thinking about the situations of people being bitter against one another in marriage and wanting to get a divorce and all this stuff. And Peter said, if such is the case of the man and his wife, it is better not to marry. He's like, yeah, it would, it's, it's really difficult to be in a bad marriage. It's, and Jesus said to him, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. Then he says, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And I think this is probably the closest thing we can find in Scripture to someone who was born with a challenge like that. He's talking about here a man who's born without the ability to father children or function normally in that way. Okay? And then he said there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Whoever is able to accept it, let him accept it. So Jesus is saying, look, these are difficult issues. And he lists that there may be folks that for whatever reason, they decide that marriage is not right for them. If they're not able to fulfill the covenant of marriage or function normally in that way, there may be people who choose not to get married, and that's okay. Not everybody gets married. That's all right. But Jesus does address this in some sense, that there are eunuchs who are born that way. And what's not appropriate is persecution, but rather grace and compassion. Satan, as we talked about, is trying to destroy gender because he wants to hurt the family. Why is destroying the family so important to the devil? Well, I'm going to show you a model. Here's a model of the nature of God. Hopefully this is instructive. We find here in this thing that we call the Godhead or God Himself, we see the Father and He is dominant. And we see beneath Him is the Son who is submissive to Him, 
and the Holy Spirit, who is in some ways submissive to both of them. We find a passage in John 14, 26 that summarizes this concept. John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to you the remembrance of all things that I said to you. So that's just a passage that reinforces this model. So this is how God operates. It's part of who He is and what He does. I'm going to show you another model that's similar to it. Think about the home for a moment. Ephesians chapter 5.22 and Ephesians 6.1 teaches us that the husband has been designated by God as the head of the family, the leader. And the wife is submissive to that husband, and the children are submissive to both of them. We find that here in Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. So also is Christ the head of the church, and He's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. It's a model. The home and our understanding of our role that's assigned to us by our biological sex, by our gender, mimics the nature of God and how He interacts with Himself. Ephesians 5.28, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes from Genesis what we already read tonight. We also find here in Ephesians 6, we have instruction for the children. Ephesians 6, 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother which is the first commandment with the promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So when we set up our home according to the Word of God, it's an instructive model that teaches people about the relationship between God, Christ, and His church. It teaches us about ourselves. It teaches us about how God interacts with Himself. Let's go one more here. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, I speak, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. These passages we often go to, we want to use them as instruction on how the family should mimic the church. But that's really using these passages a little bit backward. What Paul is actually doing in Ephesians is he is pointing to the model of the family, which these ancient cultures understood very well. And he said, you know how the family operates. And then he says, and the church operates just like that, right? So this is really more teaching about how the church ought to operate more than it's teaching about how the family ought to operate. So God created gender, and I don't know why my animations are out of order, but they are. But again, Satan is using his attack on gender to damage the family, which teaches us about God and the church, to destroy the church also. So here we go. Here's a model of the church. This should look familiar by now. Who's the head of the church? Jesus is the head of the church. And Jesus has designated some authority to the elders. And the elders then have a responsibility to the flock. But the flock and the elders are both submissive to Jesus in this relationship, in this construct. We can find it taught in Ephesians chapter 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, so Christ is the head of the church. That's his place in this hierarchy. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1 now the elders who are among you I exhort, whom also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Here's the command. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, 
not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. This is the passage that talks about the role of the elders in that construct of the church. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, More obey those who have rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls. As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Another passage about that. Now, we understand that without a firm understanding of gender and whether you're a man or a woman, we can't have elders and deacons because pretty soon we're going to have eldresses and deaconesses female pastors, which don't fit the qualifications that God has given us. In an environment where gender is up for grabs and who knows who is what, then how can we obey these commands? How can we obey 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11 that says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression." In an environment where we don't know what a man is and we don't know what a woman is, how can we be faithfully obedient to this passage? You know, this was a really golden opportunity for Jesus to come in and level set, like he did with marriage, like he did with revenge, like he did with a lot of things where Jesus said, you have heard it said thus and so, but I say to you, here's the truth. Jesus had a perfect opportunity in the New Testament when he preached a Sermon on the Mount to say, it's been told to you that gender was binary, that it was man and a woman, but I want to let you know that there's some new information and it's much more broad and inclusive than that. You need to know these things. But Jesus didn't do it. I heard a man giving a speech. He was an Anglican deacon in the Anglican church as a whole. And In their structure, there's the House of Deacons and the House of Bishops. And they were having a debate about whether people who practice homosexuality should be allowed into the clergy. And a point that he made in his speech, which was amazing, he said, I'm troubled because either every Christian from now to the very beginning since Acts chapter 2 or since the first century has gotten this teaching wrong, or what we're about to change is going to be wrong. He goes, I don't see any middle ground. Either prospect terrifies me. The good thing is that God doesn't change, even though culture does. God doesn't. And I'm confident that God has taught us what we need to know to obey Him. In an environment where gender doesn't matter, or that there's 72 genders, I guess, this passage gets really hard to obey. So is Christianity anti-feminine based on what we just read? I would say no. Firm no. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7 it says husbands likewise dwell with them according to or with understanding. Dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. You know, if you study any historic world religion you'll find that that those religions, they followed the culture. And however the culture treated women, however it would would empower men, people who were in, in charge, 
That's what the religion did. Whether you're talking about Hinduism or Islam or any other religion that you want to talk about, the men are on top and what they say goes, and there's not a whole lot of consideration given to others. And women in other parts of the world are ground underneath the boot heel of male oppression under the guise of religion. Now, you might say, you tell me that's never happened in any Christian nation? You tell me that has never happened in America? And I would say that it has, but it's been wrong. Because the text, no matter how imperfectly we may practice it, no matter how foolishly the church may have followed the culture, the Word of God says that men are to dwell with their wives understandingly and honor them. Why will we honor the wife? Because they were taken from us, improved by God, and given back to us as a gift. And the the value of a person is what are they an heir of? A woman is an heir of the same thing a man is an heir of, eternal life, being a child of God. The only thing that's different is the vessel. A weaker vessel. A vessel is a container. This word here literally means a jar of clay, a clay pot. You know, guys, we're, we're a clay pot and so is a woman. We hold the same thing, though. We may be a little more rough and tumble. You know, if I'm like a coffee cup, Laura's like a, a wine glass, right? So I'm a little more durable. I can, I can handle a few knocks. But you know what? At the end of the day, we can, we can both hold the same thing. And that's what's important. Christianity is the faith in this world that recognizes the inherent honor of women and says that they're not to be, they're not to be um, oppressed, but rather protected. You know, if you go back even in the Law of Moses, I've been reading a lot in the Old Testament, and the Law of Moses is incredibly specific about the protections given to slaves and women. Very specific. So Christianity, and by extension Judaism, are not anti-feminine, no matter how imperfectly it's been practiced by sinful humans. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, You are all sons of God, and I would say sons and daughters of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you are baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So people look at this passage and say, See, the Bible says your gender doesn't matter. Really? Well, I would say is it not that it doesn't matter or that it's not important, but it doesn't change how we stand before God. Because we can also take a look at this and say, well, according, if you're going to understand the passage that way, then you'd be able to look at the first century church and say, see, there's no more slaves. Because it says in Christ there's neither bond nor free. But yet the instruction we see in the, in, the, in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, is that slaves should be obedient to their masters. So clearly it can't mean that. What it does mean is that God honors us all, male and female, and accounts us heirs according to the promise of eternal life and the resurrection from the dead. And that's what we're thankful for. Genders in the Scripture are equal and necessary. Necessary for knowing who we are in Christ. Necessary for fulfilling the marriage covenant in a way that honors God. Necessary for the formation of strong families. And these families ought to reflect and honor the gospel. That's why marriage is so important, folks, that marriage is between one man and one woman who know who they are in Christ. It's because the relationship between a man and a woman is a picture of the gospel. 
is a picture of the church's submission to Christ, the church's dependence on Christ, Christ's love, sacrificial care, and giving for the church. And if you have a man that marries a man, or a woman that marries a woman, or putting anybody else in that mix, who's supposed to submit to whom? It's not a model of anything but chaos. It's not instructive. It doesn't glorify Christ. And if we don't know who we are, we can't obey these commands. They are equal and necessary. They're binary. You know what else is binary? Eternity. There's really no one way or the other. Or there is only one way or the other. When we study about gender, we understand that these things are important to God. And we as good stewards of creation must agree with God. We must live and act in accordance with the will of God. Teach and affirm the perfect picture we see given in the Scriptures. And with our young people, we've got to teach them the truth, no matter what the culture is trying to jam down their throat and puts in their face constantly. You know, it's so bad nowadays that it's TV commercials. It used to be that only certain movies that you could easily stay away from, had you had to worry about that stuff. Now it's, it's TV ads. It's even, if you have like a, a, a streaming account, even the pictures that they show you to say, hey, you should watch this show. If you liked this, then you should watch this. Even that shows stuff that you don't want to see and your kids don't need to see. It's on the radio. It's in our music I was listening to a song the other night, and then I figured out it was actually a guy singing about how he liked a guy. I'm like, whoop, I'm not going to listen to that one again. <laughs> Sneaks up on you. It's insidious. It's deceitful. That's the way the devil works. Your kids are going to hear about it from their friends. They may be influenced by people at school, their professors in college. Everybody in the culture is going to be anti, anti-God in this way. Because it's the prevailing cultures going this way. And so what I can say is that these issues, what we now define as doctrine in Canada is already considered criminal hate speech. And we're going to enter an era in this country, I foresee, where speaking what the truth of the Bible says could land you in jail. So how do we do this in a, in a good way? Well, look, the culture wants to throw rocks at those who profess the truth. And we can profess the truth with a self-righteous attitude. We can speak the truth with a goal of stirring up strife. We can speak the truth in a way that unnecessarily offends people. And we can make that divide deeper. Or we can choose to share these truths with humility knowing that we're all sinners who stand in need of the grace of God. We can do that in a way that tries to heal rather than further wound. Because really, it's not about us getting our way in the polls or electing the right kind of politicians to get our way. What it's really about is affirming what Christ has taught and building a strong church, strong families, and showing showing the whole world, showing the nations who God is by conforming our lives to His Word, being image bearers. And one of the best ways we can do that is affirming that humanity is born male and female. Tonight, 
I want you to think about eternity. Because eternity is binary, and there's, there's only heaven or hell. There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no place you can go that's not heaven or hell. We haven't really talked about the gospel tonight. We talked about it a little bit last night. But tonight, if you haven't obeyed the gospel, if you haven't entered a relationship with Jesus Christ through believing who He is, that He's the Son of God resurrected from the, the grave on the third day, and that He did the redemptive work on your behalf on the cross to save you from your sins. If you're willing to repent in your heart and say that I'm going to do what He wants, I'm going to place myself under His submission in the church, and I'm going to confess my faith in that tonight, and I'm going to receive baptism to join Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection, and to answer a good conscience toward Him, we can help you with that tonight. Or, if you're struggling with something, it doesn't even have to be what we talked about tonight. If you have a heavy burden, if you've been deceived or oppressed by the devil, or if you're discouraged and need encouragement, if you have a need that the church can help with, we stand ready to pray with you, pray for you. I was singing the invitation song.